Forum, where for 25 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All Westminster Town Hall forums are free and open to the public. Information on our upcoming forum on April 27th with journalist David Halberstam can be found online at eWestminster.org. It's now my pleasure to introduce the second speaker in our spring series on the meaning of America. Dr. Jacob Needleman is a professor of philosophy at San Francisco State University, the former director of the Center for the Study of New Religions at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. He's the author of more than a dozen books, including Time and the Soul, The Wisdom of Love, Money and the Meaning of Life, and the book that inspired the forum's spring series, The American Soul, Rediscovering the Wisdom of the Founders. Dr. Needleman lectures widely and serves as a consultant in the fields of psychology, education, medical ethics, philanthropy, and business. Like de Tocqueville in the 19th century, Dr. Needleman has taken up the task of exploring the idea of America and its meaning in our world today. In his book, The American Soul, he examines the religious imagination of the iconic figures of American history and how their understanding of timeless truths and ancient wisdom infused a vision of American democracy that we have inherited. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Jacob Needleman. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, being from the San Francisco Bay Area, I appreciate very much that you've provided me with a little snow <clears throat> that reminds me of my East Coast origins. So thank you very much. Just enough. <laughs> uh, I'm a philosopher, and I always like to take this opportunity to say a little bit about being a philosophy professor. Um, not exactly, sometimes I feel a little awkward calling myself a philosopher as such, because <clears throat> it means, the word, as you know, means a lover of wisdom, and to say that I, I do it professionally sounds a little bit like being a professional lover of some kind. <laughs> but I'm a professor of philosophy, and um, I always like to take this occasion to tell one story which about my, I started my life my, as a, going to be a doctor, which being from a Jewish household, it was religiously imperative that the oldest son become a doctor. <laughs> and when I told my parents after my first year at college that I was going to be a philosophy, to philosophy, uh, my father wanted to know a very fine man, but he didn't know what that word meant. And I said, well, we philosophers, we inquire into the great questions of, the, of man, of the human heart. 
who are we and does God exist and what can we know and what's the meaning of life and, and he, he said yes well, well very good but he says can't you do that and well at least be a banker or something at the same time <laughs> um, and he was right I could have and then and I got my doctorate uh, there was a party celebrating I finally achieved getting a PhD and my mother was there the sweetest woman in the world and somebody she heard somebody introduce me as Dr. Needleman and she said across the room oh he's not the kind of doctor that does anybody any good <laughs> so I've spent my life trying to disprove that, but the jury is still out. Uh, what I've tried to do in the years I've studied philosophy, I, it's a long story, but I very soon got interested deeply in the spiritual traditions of the world, all, through, all around the world, particularly in the contemplative, or what you might call loosely the mystical, but more exactly, the experiential, the inner meaning, the inner experiential meaning of the great spiritual traditions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Native American traditions, the myth, the tribal religions of Africa, the, all around the world. And I very, after several years, not just of academic study, but of personal research on my own, for my own inner world, my own personal world, I came to the conclusion, which a lot of people have, but which is not accepted in many places in the culture, that all the great spiritual traditions at their heart are saying the same thing, are having, emanating from the same great vision of what a human being is, what the universe really is, what world we live in, what we are obliged to be, what, how we, in fact, we fall short of it as we are, but we are called to become something truly, fully human. And there is a spiritual, practical life to be led that leads us in that direction, and it has to be led in association with each other. So that there is a great metaphysical, spiritual root of what we call ethics, which I'll get into in a moment. <clears throat> Very early on in my academic career, I, did, I discovered I did not wish to limit my work, my writing, my publishing, which we are obliged to do, to purely academic matters. And so I found myself trying for very, very long ago, to try to see if a bridge could be built between this phenomenally powerful vision that I've discovered, along with many other people, of the inner meaning of our religious traditions. And a bridge could be built between that vision of the universe, of human nature, and the practical, everyday, real, concrete questions and problems of our everyday life in this culture, in this world we live in, in this body we inhabit, in these relationships that are thrust upon us. And so my work has been an attempt to build a bridge between what you might call the great 
eternal questions of the heart and the urgent problems of our society. Now, the difference between a question in that sense and a problem is very interesting to me because a problem is something to be solved. A question is something to be lived. And that we mustn't confuse those two. The great questions of human life need to be lived very deeply. And it, there are answers, I believe, but those answers don't come necessarily in the form of words right away, but in the form of experiences of oneself. But the problems we face, dealing with e the economy, with our children, with education, with our religious forms, with our relationship to things like money, uh, sexual identity, uh, with our relationship to the pressures of technology and time and discrimination. These are urgent, burning questions of pro that are problems. But my view, my hope, my, maybe it's too much to call it a mission, but my wish, my aim, has been to explore the possibility of light, real light being thrown on these problems of our culture and our lives by and from the great vision of the spiritual traditions of the world. And one, it, some time ago, looking at what uh, my next project would be, I realized there was one burning question, one problem, if you like, that I felt I would wish to understand how to throw light on it for myself and for anybody else I could help, it could, that could be helped by it. And that was the problem of the meaning of America, the country I lived in, the country we live in, we are part of. This was way before 9-11. And I think, what? And I, at first, and for quite a while, I resisted trying to write about that. Because, frankly speaking, I had always been allergic to American history. I was brought up in Philadelphia, which is, calls itself, along with a few other cities, the cradle of America, and we heard a lot about American history, and as a young person, I was really uh, crushingly bored by the men in white wigs and buckled shoes and the constant field trips to the Independence Hall and then reading these things that I didn't have any connection to, and especially William Penn and the, and the Quakers and the, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and they're just screamingly bored. And so, and also I could not connect to politics. As I was interested in the universe, I was interested in science, I was interested in the meaning of life. Politics seemed to be so compromised, so relative, so filled with illusions and, and a kind of meaningless passions, anger, and compromises. So at the same time, there was this problem. What is this thing called America? What's happened to it? Why do we, somewhere in my heart, as many people, I loved my country. 
I just hated American history, that's all. But I loved America and loved the flag. And it was for me a personal question as well. Then I started studying the founding, the founders of this country. And I didn't want to, Washington, of all the boring people, he's got to be the most boring. But I wound up going deeply into the study of Washington's life and his writings and his speeches and the, the stories around him. The, and this was the most interesting man, the deepest man, as a being, as a person. What he did, what he was, how the forces that went through him. And I started to realize what we needed was a retelling of the American story. And that's what I'm trying to do in my book as an opening question, to, to retell, if you like, to re-mythologize America in the light of the spiritual teachings of the world. These people, Washington to, to a great extent, but Jefferson, Madison, Adams, Hamilton, and others, all of them studied the great ideas of Western philosophical traditions, Western spiritual traditions. They were deeply into it. To put it very quickly, they too were philosophers. They were interested in truth, in wisdom, in virtue. Of course, there was lots of other motivations involved. And the people were not always pure in any sense of the term. They were human beings. They had them, of course. But something was needed, not in the sense of idealizing them, but of making the story of America resonate to our inner wishes, our inner nature, and finding who are the real founders of this country and how to retell the story, and not just in terms of its positive sides, which I was extraordinarily, I was thrilled to discover the depth of thought of these people, but also to look at the crimes of America with the same from the same deep perspective that I would hope to find in the spiritual traditions. The crimes which of slavery, of the uh, on near destruction of the American Indian, Native American culture, and others. And what I found was this, the meaning of America. What I found I could express by coming at it one other way, because we haven't that much time. When I was standing two years ago at the North Bridge and outside of Concord, Massachusetts, where the near where the shot heard round the world was, and the American Revolution began, and there was a plaque commemorating the Minutemen who fought off the most powerful army and representatives of the most powerful army in the world, which had they crossed that bridge, they would have taken over all of the arms and munitions and the American Revolution could not have started the way it did. And it was celebrating these men, minute men, who died or fought for the sake of freedom. And that was one of those words, freedom. And I ask myself, and I ask you, when you hear that word, freedom, what do you see? What do you imagine? What does it mean? It's thrown around so much, but what is it? Freedom from tyranny, yes. Freedom from 
things, yes. But freedom for what? And if you think in yourself a little bit, you find, I think most of us, I don't have a quick answer to that. I know I want freedom, but for what? And what I discovered and what I think we have to, I would like to suggest as a re-mythologizing, in the good sense of myth, that is a story of truth, is that the genius, the meaning of America, why it's, it's protecting something, it's guarding something, the structure of the Constitution, which whatever one may say is a work of extraordinary genius by these young people who put together something that's meant to protect something. And you could say liberty, freedom, independence, yes, but for what? That's not been reflected upon very much. And what I'm suggesting, the meaning of America, I'm putting it in a very simple way, is to protect, to have a nation, a government, a society, if you like, which can protect the possibility of men and women freely to come together and associations, as de Tocqueville spoke of them, for the sake of the searching for their own conscience, for inner ethical, spiritual truth, not in the sense of any sectarian religion, but in the sense of a conscience that every human being needs to rediscover in oneself, not so much the socially conditioned superego or socially conventional moralism of a time, but the voice from within, as the Quakers would put it, the inner divinity, if you like, or what in their deepest meaning of the term, the word reason meant to some of the founders. The word reason did not always mean just the cerebration of the intellect in scientific or, or abstract logical forms. It also meant something having to do with the heart or the inner human being. So the search for, for conscience to come together and to search for their own source of goodness was what I understood finally as what America was protecting with all its military, with all its economic forms, with all its uh, political ingenious forms, with all its division of the three powers, with all the checks and balances that we value, which are often sort of exploited in wrong ways, with the voting system, with the electoral system, with all its flaws. It was there to protect that. Whether the people running the country knew it or not, whether the people, all people would be engaged in that search or not, that was the heart of America. And I believe you can interpret Jefferson and others seeing that. Because for someone like a Jefferson or Adams or many of the founders, including, I have included in the founders uh, a little bit necessarily, I mean, you had to include the great minds, not from the 18th century, but someone like Frederick Douglass, who in the 19th century was truly the conscience of the nation. But what Jefferson also and others saw was that freedom was not freedom 
to get things, not freedom to shop, not freedom for material security and possessions, although that was very important as a base, but freedom to search for virtue, that there was no real happiness for a human being without virtue. Now that's a very old word now, that sometimes it makes people yawn, but to understand that there's a vision of human nature that says a human being is meant to give, not to get. Human beings are built to serve, not to, not to uh, tyrannize, are built to give. No happiness, in according to the great visions of all the traditions, no human happiness or fulfillment can ever come until we have been able to serve something greater than ourselves, and especially other human beings. So that's putting it in a nutshell, that without that, everything else about America will not survive in any meaningful way, in my opinion. And that's a big thing to say, I know, because it's such a huge question. There are so many forces at work. But for better or worse now, I'm, I'm widely generalizing, America is still the place where that's protected with all our flaws. How, if that is ever lost, then I think all the rest of America will sooner or later disappear in the form that we know it. In any case, the world will not want to keep us. Now, getting going quickly to one other aspect connected to this, and it's very important, what's the practical aspect of it? Where does it show up? What can we do? It has to do with people coming together to think together, to reflect together, to speak together in a way which has been lost almost entirely, the civility of discourse between people. The work, the joyous but difficult work of opening one's mind to let in the other person's view. And Jefferson writes about that very well to let in what the other person is saying. And that is a special work. It requires an interior struggle. Because if you notice now in the public discourse that we hear, I'm sure all of you will agree, most of the time it's just people shouting at each other. Or pretending to listen, which is, you know, you, you keep quiet and just reload your gun, waiting for the moment to shoot the other person. That is not listening. Listening is not waiting to come in and refute the other person, or even because very often the refutation does not even reflect that what has been said. But to let in the other person and then respond and to let in the other ways to do. It's a work of listening to each other, which is the pre, the prelude, a very distant prelude, but it is a prelude to the work of love is to be able to give one's attention to the other person to their, and to maybe argue with their views, but not with the person. In other words, I can disagree vigorously with your opinions, but I don't reject you. But now it's come to the point where people are rejecting each other and not so much just the views. And that is a long work of how to separate oneself from one's own opinions 
in order to, some, to have something deeper take place between people. So that work of, was a reinterpretation of what de Tocqueville called the great strength of America, freedom of voluntary associations. He didn't speak of it so much as people listening to each other, although it's implied sometimes. But that's what I would say is one of the key elements to help all of us come to some connection with conscience. So there are those two things. America protects, the forms of America protect the search for one's inner voice of truth. And the coming together can be a very important, maybe essential implement to finding that inner voice of conscience. That is to say, in the words of Socrates, is to finding and tending to one's soul, which is a word that Socrates was one of the first to use and define in a way that we would understand it. It is the title of the book or the phrase of the American soul, or the soul of America, is that, I think, that a nation is not a person. You could say, how can a nation have a soul? Well, I think this is the outline of it. It is the blueprint for finding it. But ultimately, the, a nation is people. And I would say, if I had to say, what is the soul of America? The soul of America is people searching for their own soul, their own conscience. That is where the heart of America is. And if that can be supported, even in little ways, invisible ways, then I think there is something in this time of great despair and fear and anger and resentment and a sense of hopelessness. There is something that people can do with each other that will be the beginning. Some years ago, I was at a guest at, listening to the State of the Union speech and afterwards I met with a few congressmen and women and talked about this work of listening to each other. And I said to them, and they got very interested in it. And I said to them, I imagine you, when you are discussing legislation that's going to affect millions of Americans' lives, and maybe the lives of the world, and the world, I imagine you listen to each other this way. They looked at me as though I were crazy. I knew that was going to be about, they said, and they were very touched by that question. They said, never, never, never do we listen like this. I think I would, if I had, I'm not a political person, but if I had a banner, I'd hate a very little banner, I would say, that's our work. Other people have other work to do, but that is the work of listening, thinking together is the beginning for me of the awakening, of the reawakening of the American soul. Is that clear? Thank you.
Thank you, Jacob Needleman. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our guest today is philosopher Jacob Needleman. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the Hognander and Baker Foundations, sponsors of today's forum, and all the organizations and individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our day. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum for the final presentation in our spring series, The Meaning of America, on April 27th, when journalist David Halberstam addresses the forum. Further information is available online at ewestminster.org. Dr. Needleman, if you will return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You have written that the uh, that democracy is, is less an external form of government than it is an internal attitude or a state of mind. Can you expand upon that a little bit and then particularly reflect on that as we attempt to transfer democracy to other cultures and other places? I think, uh, of course, within our, the Christian tradition and many other traditions, not so obviously, the idea of the revolutionary idea that all human beings are children of God, that is, all human beings are part of the same greatness that each other, that there's no distinction of class or of rank between human beings. You are a human. I am a human. I have this within me, this divinity within me, or this greatness within me, as well as falling away from it. Um, so a democratic attitude would, wouldn't have to be religious or spiritual in that sense, but a sense that there's a human being behind all those eyes. There's a human being behind those faces. How to open to that person? Now maybe that person is a criminal. Maybe that person is bad, is threatening me. All that is definitely needs to be responded to. And this is not a wishy-washy idea. But the idea that this is a human being, the feeling of it, to simply entertain that and try to remember that, to see how difficult it is. Abstractly, like reading a nice book, I can think I'm one with all people. But to actually remember that when I'm with the other person, particularly when the person is disagreeing with me in some way, that's the work of the, being a democratic person. Now, it's difficult to, I don't know, what is it we're trying to export? What exactly is it? Is it an attitude toward human beings? Or is it a form, an external form? And if it's an external form, do we as Americans listen to the people we're trying to present it to? Are we trying to put it on them? Or are we trying to listen to them? Is our work of spreading democracy a response to a, a need? Or is it the imposition of a form in our own self-interest? That has to, we have to face that candidly. And sometimes it's the second one, I'm afraid, and not the first. 
What do you be believe to be the abiding principles of our country? I like the easy questions like this. <laughs> this is Minnesota, after all. <laughs> We're, I, well, the only really interesting questions are the unanswerable ones. So let's, let's look at that one. What is a Christian? And that's uh, not a, an escape from the question. But the principles of Christianity, I won't go into this much more, but they're at the heart, like the principles of Judaism and Islam and are at the heart of every tradition. But in terms of what I think you're asking, uh, the founders, Many of them were Christian. Many of them were totally allergic to institutional forms. And they were breaking away as children of the Enlightenment from church forms of any kind that they felt were throttling the freedom. So you can interpret the American history more as an Enlightenment, a form of the Enlightenment, or sometimes as blending with the Judaic tradition, as. Uh, many, some people have done. Uh, but in terms of as a, as a sectarian part, as a formal institutionalized part, I think that's a misreading of American history. I don't think, I think there's something beyond that at, which would be universally Christian, you could argue that, but not sectarian. You have a sense that immigrants have appreciated the core intents of our founding fathers and mothers more viscerally than longer-term Americans. My mother, an immigrant, raised me to value deeply how America is different from other countries, for better and for worse. Absolutely. I think uh, the strength of America is drawn so much from immigrants coming from all over the world, coming from under the radar into our, our country with their values, old, good, solid values. So I would say yes, and after, just after 9-11, I went over to my, a friend of mine, I have a garage mechanic who, my car is repaired by people who are Afghan, and uh, it turned out my, the mechanic who, who owns this garage is a, actually a very educated Afghani who was so, so educated that he actually had read some of my books and uh, it was a shock. But having a, 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 fa a fan who's a garage, your auto mechanic, is as good as having a doctor in the family. <laughs> but I went over there and asked him about whether to see if he had been all right, because there were people breaking windows and attacking Afghanis right after 9-11. And he gave me the most extraordinary talk about the meaning of America that I have ever heard. These many of the immigrants, they don't all have to know the philosophical principles. I think many of them feel them in their heart, and, but he articulated them as well as anybody ever. So on the whole, I would say they do appreciate much more than we do. Which is the greater threat to American conscience, licentiousness or religious fundamentalism? Yes, I still beat my wife. Um, I'd love to, I'd like to honor questions. 
and what he speaks to the question behind the question. What closes us off from what we are? Man, you know, there's a saying in the Bible, man's name is legion. That is, we have many, many things in us. And there are many, we are very creative in how we corrupt what we are. And those are two very creative ways of not being fully human, I would say. So I would say there it is, a close tie. Well done on that response, I'll tell you. <laughs> I sense that we are enduring an epidemic of isolations. Can you comment on isolation in American society today? From each other, I think it is happening. I think there's a, a terrible epidemic of loneliness, and isolation from others, uh, partly due to technology. Uh, people are being cut off, they're staying home, they're watching the TV, they're in front of the computer. Uh, at the same time, there is a deep hunger for relation, for, for association, but we've lost the meaning of it. We've lost the purpose of it. Uh, why do we need to come together? Why do people need each other? They don't need each other just to be, feel good, just to have, uh, f uh, make money which is a whole subject that we could get into about how the culture has become commodified and monetized. We, don't need, we need each other to, to support each other's search, to, to support each other's wish to be fully human. Uh, and that's been clearly lost entirely. But there's a loneliness in the culture. Uh, and um, that, I think, we need to rediscover the, 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 the meaning of just being in the same room together, listening to our music, or speaking together, thinking together, cooking and eating together. And I think that's beginning to happen. People are beginning to feel that. So I think I, that's where I would interpret it within the country. I'm not sure the question didn't refer to politically isolationism, but within the culture, I think our technology is isolating us much more than... It's really ironic because the internet and television were all promoted as ways for human beings connecting to each other. Do you feel more connected to human beings through television, through all these things? We don't. So a surface connection is being substituted for a heart, a deeper connection. Question, question come somewhat related to your comment about technology and, uh, and the internet and how that may or may not hinder uh, connection among uh, human beings. How practically can listening be promoted and advanced within the cacophony of media and modern life? Well, you turn off the television first. First, it's the hardest step. And then you begin to talk to each other, join a book club, come to a church discussion group, think together, discuss. That's the beginning. But believe me, it's, it's what I call finding philosophical friends. Believe me, it's possible. People are looking. Uh, you just, one has to take that first step. And there's a practice of, you know, a sort of a spiritual exercise. When you're watching television, you, you ask, so I'll tell you, when you're watching the television, sometimes you're just in the middle of the show, like I was watching a show last night, I loved Law and Order, 
great, sucked right into it. Just collect yourself together, become quiet inside, get up and turn it off. <laughs> wait, wait, and just go sit down or go get a glass of water or something and observe what seemed to be such a gripping thing. You don't miss it at all. I don't care what happened in that courtroom 20 seconds after I turned it off. And you see, you've been sucked in. Now, the rest of the experiment is go back to your couch, collect yourself, then turn it on, and watch yourself get devoured. When you see that enough, you realize what we call interest is often being devoured. And when enough of that, you begin to appreciate that the television is great, I watch it all the time, and think, but, but you begin to realize that maybe our whole life is devouring us. And that's the beginning of a, another relationship to our own inner energy, our own inner presence. It's a long story, but I, that's a, it's a little bit of a hint of something. Another question about listening. Do you have any suggestions for how we might provoke ideologues, those who are fixed in their opinion on both ends of the spectrum, to listen to opposing views? Um, no. All right, the next question then. <laughs> There is a way, though, to begin. I do it in my classes, and some of you know it. There's an experiment, and the Native American traditions had something like this sometimes, and psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors know about it. And very briefly, you try sometimes to have in a classroom two opposing views on a subject that's deeply, passionately held. And you bring the two people, two of the people together, A and against and for, and you ask them to, the rules are, State your view and the rule that for A and B can only reply after they have summarized A, we follow, and went to the extent that A would be willing to say, that's a fair summary. And that goes back and forth. And by the end of about 10 or 15 minutes of that, people who were just deeply sucked in by their own view of separated themselves enough to be able to see the, that's another person there. So that is the work of listening to the person and not just to the, just the words. That can be done in a classroom or in a controlled, safe setting. But to go out there and try it with any of our well-known ideologues, I wouldn't risk it to myself. <laughs> Do we still have a government of the people by the, do we still have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? We, I think we do, but we're, it's a danger, we're in danger. And I think we have to be very creative in finding ways to rediscover our power. And we have to recognize that we're frightened, that we have opinions and views that scare, that scare us. That we get most of our views from places we haven't really examined, from the television, from the newspapers, uh, from hearsay. 
we don't know very much for ourselves. And I think particularly in this part of the country, there's the tradition of finding things out for yourself and inquiring independently. And I think the forms still exist for that. It, it, we have to really fight for it now. How do we face our dark side as a nation? Is a Jungian question for you. How do we face our dark side as a nation? Well, I'll tell you a story. I was writing this book, and I don't say this to promote myself, but I was writing this book and I, I felt I had to include the crimes of America, the chief of which was the Native American and the slavery. And in writing about slavery and racism and quoting Frederick Douglass, by the end of my, that chapter, I realized that what we really need in the face the crime of slavery is genuine remorse. Not neurotic guilt trips, but a genuine head-bowing remorse that for what our country and ourselves have been part of. And I was, when the book was published, I was on a talk show, a radio talk show, where people called in and you don't know where they're calling from. And you have to answer very quickly of a sound bite, which I've had to develop that. And um, I'm not too good at it. But anyhow, one of the questions that came from somebody in a, driving a truck somewhere in Texas, and it was a black man, and he said, he hadn't read my book, but he heard what I kind of things I was saying, and he said, uh, Professor Needleman, what do, you, what do you have to say about racism and what has been done to African Americans? And I had no quick, I was really scared, because I had no quick response to it. I had to respond right away, and so I had no choice but to say what I had discovered by writing my book, that the only, without what is needed more than anything is the real feeling feeling deeply what has been done, the feeling of genuine remorse. All other correctives won't mean much unless that's at the heart of them. And I was just waiting for him to say, well, that's even evasion or something. And he didn't. He said, and I say, that's not to protect, promote myself, but just because this is fascinating. He said, that's the best answer I ever heard. And it really touched me very much. Uh, to face the crimes means to suffer them in oneself, not just that it was someone else that did it. And when that's done, that brings light, in my opinion. You frequently use the word soul, and you referred to it in your remarks today and, of course, in your books. How do you define the word soul? Your real identity, your real I, that in you which can really say, mean, and be, I am. Just as when Moses asked God in the, in the Exodus, who shall I say has sent me? And God gives this mysterious answer, which one translation of which is, tell them, I am, has sent you. What kind of a name is that? Well, that means that the essence of divinity is this capacity of self 
deep, deep self-identity. So it's what you, what you are. There's something in us that is this true I, this true I am, that is not so easy, but it appears in certain moments of great crisis and need. And that's what I think Socrates and all the great teachers have meant by soul, not just our acquired personality that we get through our conditioning. Dr. Needleman, my PhD in philosophy will be conferred officially next Monday. Congratulations, whoever that is in the audience. What advice would you offer to me, to philosophers, uh, professional or otherwise, who are just beginning the pursuit of their vocation? Remembering your mother's words, perhaps. Yes. Uh, <laughs> remember my mother. I was also going to have a t-shirt made called, which said philosophy, and on the back, I'm in it for the money. But uh, there's a revolution going on, and it may not appear in some academic and a lot of academic departments, but there is a revolution of deeper values that the real philosophy is coming back, and it's, very, it's throughout. So you play the game, but look for the reality. It's, it's out there. Final wrap-up, quick answer, please. Are you hopeful about America? Yes, I am. I mean, I'm frightened and hopeful, uh, because this is the... This almost symbolizes the, the meaning of the beginning, the meaning of America. It's not many places in the world where people come together like this and listen to a lecture and go and discuss questions. This is very precious. And there's so much need for this, and people feel it, and that's where I see the hope. Thank you, Jacob Needleman.